0: I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID, to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. They talked
1: about it in Germany in 1848, that being a a time where history failed to turn. And we're going to ask ourselves, is 2020 going to be that moment where history fails to turn, where this, this grinding, authoritarian, white supremacist regime embeds itself deeper and further into the body politic until it has shredded even the remaining vestiges of democracy?
2: Or is there a place for the people to fight back? Local and county elections get overlooked generally anyway, but then we also have to build up the actual infrastructure or progressive machine, so to speak, to actually support these candidates so that they do have a a actually shot in the community. And that takes Mm -hmm. time. Um, And really it's been a civic engagement lesson for the, the whole state and the nation as a
3: whole. None of this is possible without white supremacy. Like, right, white supremacy really is the thing that makes it all go and makes it all possible and, and continually underwrites it in all these ways, whether it's uh, Mitch McConnell talking about you know, blue state bailouts to you know, everything else all the way down. So that in, unless you have an analysis of white supremacy at the center of any understanding of the politics of, of the pandemic, then then, then, you know, then you're not going to get anywhere.
4: It's so transparent what one side in our political life is trying to do to the other side. And if we can't stop this and find a way for universal voting, then we will not have a democracy.
0: The morning of January 6th began with startling contrasts in America. At one moment, we were celebrating the historic electoral wins in Georgia. And at the same time, we were bracing for the existential threat to democracy that was coming from the Capitol. And as the Peach State delivered a previously unimagined victory, America witnessed the commander in chief urge an angry crowd to, quote, walk down to the Capitol and show strength. This mob's goal was to stop the steal and to embody and embolden Trump's call, the call that said, we will never give up, we will never concede, it doesn't happen. Now on the other side of the aisle, President-elect Biden called for unity and reconciliation, urging that, quote, America is about honor, decency, respect, tolerance, that's who we are. Now as images of insurrectionists beating a Capitol policeman with a pole, With the American flag attached to it flooded the airways, Republicans and Democrats alike have insisted that our country is, quote, better than this. So for students of history and those of us who've inherited the ugliest chapters of our past, this refrain reflects perhaps a most worrisome choice in response to this crisis. Our country's greatest conflagration and loss of life in the American Civil War came from the actions of elected representatives who set out to destroy the Union rather than risk losing their peculiar form of property. Thus, the choice to confront the intentional weaponization of the resentments, mythologies, and deceptions with homilies and kubaya is nearly as troubling as the mob's actions that shocked the world. America wants to be better than this, but is better possible so long as we deny our past. If it is true that hindsight is twenty twenty, what's going on? So the reason for the aphorism hindsight is 20 the reason it's so pervasive is that there is a belief that if we know then what we know now, perhaps we would collectively pursue a different route, a better route conventionally we want to think that as part of the human condition we learn from our mistakes yet the fact that we've consistently seen to rehearse dynamics that are anti-democratic and that do not help us rise to our aspirations suggests that hindsight may not be 2020 after all or that if it is there are other dynamics that limit our human capacity to alter our course Well, today we want to immerse ourselves in this moment with a prism trained on understanding not only what hindsight might be telling us, but what conditions are necessary for us to heed it. What kind of problem are we facing beyond the banal assurances that we are good people? What does it mean to resist the instinct of denial running across the political spectrum and grapple with the reflection that our nation sees when it looks unflinchingly in the mirror. Now, surely, we're not suggesting that this is a simple rehearsal of the past. David Blight has warned us about this. Nor is this an unbelievable set of conditions, something else. He's also reminded us that unbelievable might be the most overused word in our political discourse at the moment. We know one thing for sure, though. Our challenge is to step into our assessment of the moment, not clutching our pearls but instead understanding that we already have the grammar, the language, the history, the cultural terrain at our disposal to understand the moment we're in. So speaking of bringing the past forward, I'm thrilled to welcome back four of our veterans. Carol Anderson is a professor of American Studies at Emory University and the author of White Rage, which won the 2016 National Book Critics Circle Award. David Blight is professor of American history at Yale University and the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning biography, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom and other publications such as the award winning Race and Reunion, The Civil War in American Memory. Anoa Changa is an organizer and lawyer and is previously the director of digital strategy and storytelling at the New Georgia Project. You can read her recent op-ed in Truthout. Raffensperger stood up to Trump, but he also attacked voting rights groups. And finally, Joe Lowndes is a professor of political science at the University of Oregon, whose most recent book, Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race in the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity, explores the complex racial politics of the contemporary US right, from the militia movement to the alt-right to the mainstream Republican Party. So I'm gonna start with Anoa. Um, We went into the week with a blockbuster story (laughs) of President Trump's jaw-dropping efforts to persuade the Secretary of State into finding more votes in order to change the outcome of the election. And I have to say, jaw-dropping only comparatively given what was to come during the rest of the week. So all this news coverage, the coveted feature in 60 Minutes, Rad Raffensperger was applauded for telling President Trump that the data he had was just plain wrong. We have to follow the process, follow the law, Everything we've done for the last 12 months follows the constitution of the state of Georgia. So these statements gave him the reputation of the Republican with a spine, someone who stood up to Donald Trump and overturning the 2020 election. So we are parachuting in. How is the real story more complicated and what image do you have for us to, to think about that more critically? The depiction of Brad Raffensperger
2: as if he's the people's champion or some type of great uh, champion of voting rights and election integrity is is rather laughable for those of us here in the state of Georgia who have watched Brad Raffensperger over the past just actively engage in behaviors that undermine the election process and voting rights itself. Specifically, even though he was rejecting some of the more outlandish and egregious fraudulent statements being made by the president and by many supporters, he did engage in investigations, and other actions to try and appease Republicans. So, you would have heard mentioned if you're paying close attention to the Georgia election post election during the runoff period about 250 investigations that were happening because they are taking things very seriously on the heels of these various allegations that were being made. In fact, Many of those, according to the AJC, were actually overstated in terms of their scope, in terms of the overall number. There was also Brad Roethlisberger siding with the voter suppressive group True the Vote in its attempt to undermine several hundred thousand voters here in Georgia on the basis of filing a uh, change of address form without any indication that people had permanently moved, whether or not they actually moved outside of the county. Um, Several counties had rejected challenges that had been mustered right before the runoff, tossing them out. And then in two counties, they actually had to go to federal court. And the judge, who happens to be uh, the sister of Stacey Abrams, rightfully relying on the law, rejected those challenges and upheld the National Voter Registration Act. And Brad Rassenberger wrote a very partisan, very blatantly false statement admonishing her decision and siding with a Texas-based voter-suppressive organization that had been working with the Republican Party in order to disenfranchise voters. So there are, like, so many different instances. I mean, also misinterpreting law around whether or not people could engage in what's called line warming. I mean, these are just some of the different things that he's done, not to mention at the very beginning of the pandemic when he did the, the, the brave move, I think, of sending out absentee ballot applications to all eligible voters in the state, he then turned around caving to pressure of his party a week later and formed a criminal absentee ballot task force that consisted of primarily white conservative uh, prosecutors with the intent of looking to prosecute people for potential fraud, including even looking at signature match issues, which many of us know signature match issues can happen for a variety of reasons, majority which have nothing to do with fraudulent activity at all. So these are just some of the things that were happening with Brad Raffensperger that were overlooked by media looking for a hero in the Republican Republican Party against Trump, I think if anyone would like to praise a secretary of state being steadfast throughout this whole process, you might want to look at the Republican secretary of state from the state of Washington, who has been very clear and consistent from the very beginning about the fact that voter fraud, even with absentee ballot use, is virtually non-existent.
0: I love the framing of, of people looking for a hero, right? And so when we have sort of just a flat idea about the good guy and the bad guy, you know, because he stands up to Trump, he's suddenly a good guy. But what we're not seeing is all of the ways in which he participated in vote repression. And and if we don't see that, um, then we don't see hardly what may be at stake now. What message people, you know, like Raffensperger um, or others around him are 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 receiving? If if all of the things that you've done are not enough, then doesn't that obviously push the party further, further to the right? Or for that matter, you know, what's the story that we're going to infer from Pence? Um, Carol, um, what's your take on these Georgia officials as being the saviors of democracy? Wow,
1: um, it, 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 it is a really bad script that needs to be kicked back to the screenwriters. You've got this billboard that has Kemp and Raffensperger listed as traitors. And this is a billboard that is in Forsyth County, which is a county that had uh, massive lynchings and then ethnic cleansing where it drove all of the black people out, you know, from 1914 until sometime in the 1990s. So that's Forsyth County. And this is saying, no matter all of the damage that you have done, all of the dirt that you have done, Kemp purges 10% of the voters in Georgia in 2018 while he's the secretary of state running for governor. Then in October of 2018, using a thing called exact match, he removes 53,000 voter registrants from the rolls because there was some problem like a hyphen in one part of the name didn't match up with what they had in a database. I mean, something really small and insignificant like that. Of those 53,000, 70% of them were African American. So this is right before the election with Stacey Abrams for governor. And that wasn't enough. And you think about Raffensperger, Raffensperger, I mean, Noah just beautifully laid it out. This thing about warming the line, so he sends out, I'm going to, you know, be charging folks with felonies. Warming the line means that in Cobb County, they reduced the number of polling stations in minority communities, significantly reduced them from the general election in November to the runoff in January. And so you had lines that were four hours long in January, and it is cold. So to be able to provide hand warmers for people, to be able to provide some sustenance for people, you see the callousness and the cruelty that is coursing through this regime that cannot and refuses to acknowledge people's basic rights and basic humanity. That is not heroism, but what you saw there in that billboard in Forsyth County was
0: they weren't cruel enough. Right. And that's you know partly what is so astonishing about the level of, and I'm going to use a frame that is yours, white rage that we later saw playing out, you know, in the Capitol and across the country. So if any one would think if there is a story about anti-democratic. Processes. It would be what uh, what Kemp and Raffensberger did. It would be the vote repression that's happening across the country. It would be Black voters and and Latino voters and 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 um, others who've been pushed out. But yet the rage uh, is coming from uh, white voters. So I guess one of the the things that is sort of curious is like how do they do that, right? How do they Repress the vote, um, make it almost impossible for uh, political power to be exercised by those that they don't want uh, to exercise it. And still at the end of the day, Trump and company are able to frame this election as a fraudulent one. It's, it's like how, how are these two things possible at the same time? It's because of the power the
1: addictive power of white supremacy. We've got to understand that. And so what that means is is that African-Americans, indigenous people, Hispanics are not American citizens. They don't have the right to vote. And so when they exercise that power, it is seen as illegitimate power. And so anything that emanates from that vote is therefore illegitimate, because what it's doing is it is taking away from a white power structure, what I've called in in white rage, a neo-apartheid state, where you have a vast rightless labor pool and the resources from that labor are generated and moved up to a small strata of whites. Other whites believe that they can participate in those benefits, but that's not how that system works. So it's the wages of
0: whiteness that are coming through in this. It's almost like capital in the bank, right? It's, it's something that Trump was able to use to, to basically buy credibility, even in the face of all of these irregularities in voting, that if anything, go the other way. I mean, it's somewhat of a miracle um, that the election came out its way given how many discouraging dimensions of of political apartheid continue to to play out. So I want to come back to, to that in a moment. But let, let me get David your image, because I think it builds on um, what Carol just said.
4: When I first saw this, which was probably later in the evening on 6th January, I just had to sit down. I mean, I, I just thought, oh, my God, And all I could think was, well, this is a new lost cause that just assaulted the Capitol. And there they are employing this oldest image of uh, whiteness, of race, of slavery, of the Confederacy, of being a rebel and all of that. Uh, And then it it actually became the first sentence of this op-ed I wrote over the weekend. Uh, You know, there's a new lost cause possibly evolving. Now, we shouldn't forget also, that, that mob had all kinds of flags, didn't they? They had the Gadsden flags, they had the, uh, which are the uh, Don't Tread on Me flags, It's that's the appeal, back to the revolution, that's what the Tea Party invoked. They had zillions of Trump flags and then American flags. We should remember, though, that lost causes have patterns to them. They almost always prepare people to some degree for violence. They are rooted in big and little lies, but they're, they're generally rooted in big lies that become deep kinds of myths, you know, kind of anthropological style myths, narratives, stories that people come to hold as beliefs. doesn't matter what facts or evidence may be thrown at them. Uh, they become beliefs in search of a history. And that's what these people are. I cannot begin to explain these conspiracy theories. I've read a lot about QAnon, but I'm having still a hard time getting my, my head around it. But they hold beliefs. They don't tell you any facts about what happened in the election in Georgia or the election in Michigan or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. They just tell you they don't believe that a Republican could have lost. They just tell you that Georgia is not blue. They just tell you that Trump won in a landslide. Beliefs can be empowering, but beliefs can be extraordinarily dangerous. And lost causes also have to be passed on to next generations. They have to have iconography. They have to have symbolism. Uh, They're most effective when they tend to have one or more iconic, uh, almost saint-like heroes, martyrs. Uh, This lost cause doesn't yet quite have a martyr. I, you know, I'm not. And I'm not do you think
0: it. Trump cannot be that? Like he's not going to be like uh, Robert E. Lee, who is the well, martyr? You know, basically the representative of the lost cause. Yeah.
4: Well, I want to. I want to be careful with historical parallels. I, I don't think he can become a Lee in the sense Lee did. For after all, Lee was a soldier in a war that killed hundreds of thousands of people. So he could, he could wear that, so to speak. And he also died before they made all this myth about him. But I don't know. I mean, it's hard to predict. However, if this guy uh, gets tried in the Senate, let's assume he is convicted. Maybe they get 17 Republicans to vote for this because they're so determined to get him out of the way and declare him ineligible to ever run again. He's more of a victim then than he even portrays himself now to that so-called base. That's why this is a delicate thing to manage, not only about that trial, but it's such a delicate problem for Joe Biden and his team. How much do you come into office preaching a kind of necessary healing and unity, and how much do you come in with a clenched fist? Yeah, how much yeah. of this is unity, and how much of this is going to be justice and retribution? That's a tough thing to manage, but we've got to have a lot of both, because it could determine just what kind of figure even Trump becomes in that, what Lindsey Graham called, let's not forget, he called Trump a movement. Mm
0: -hmm.
4: Right. Let's hope it doesn't become a lost cause and it just flares out like the bad TV show.
0: Well, that is that is truly the question and so you know some part of looking back looking back we can see the moments where as, as you pointed out like uh, robert e lee became you know the, this figure uh, we have a sense of how women uh, were the holders of this the generation after the generation that lost felt like it was, you know, their reason for being to elevate this story about, you know, not treason, but, you know, fighting to protect their way of life. So we can see the moments where Lost Cause actually took a hold of our culture and our, our memory. And to a certain extent, you know, you still hear echoes of it. Can we learn anything from that to know these are inflection points, right? This is and, and part of what I hear you saying is, you know, potentially, you know the trial might be one of those moments that we have to think about so uh, i'm keen to understand where where this history tells us i'm also keen to understand who these people you know, are. So uh, Joe, uh, I want to come to you and get your, your image for a moment. You know, you, you see so many people struggling with the idea of this can't really have been that much of a threat because it was like a carnival and people were having a good time and really doesn't look like white supremacists because, you know, look at all the, the women that were there and, and the young couples and some people of color. So, you know, there there is this image of what people think real threat is, and then there's what's actually there. So give give us a sense of what you want to tell us uh, about your prognoses for redirecting some of these energies.
3: It's important to remember that you know this this event happened in D.C. on uh, January 6th, but you know the modern GOP itself, since the 1960s, uh, has been fashioned on opposition to black civil rights and black freedoms. I mean that's that was you know, that was the basis of the Goldwater campaign in 64. It was the basis of the Nixon campaigns in 68 and 72, It was the basis of the Reagan campaign in 1980, on and on. So there's a way in which this is, you know, baked into the very identity of the Republican party. But I think this, the kind of the move to the sharp right is a little bit new and something we've now seen develop over the last four years. But even, you know, in the last three or four months, this kind of radicalization permeates state and local Republican organizations all across the country. And the call to action, the call to both to protest at state capitals around the country and to come to D.C. uh, were passed around by Republican officials, party officials, and uh, sitting elected officials all over the place with violent language. Um, I wouldn't call it insurrectionary language. I would call it counter-insurrectionary language. Uh, And, you know, all this stuff is going to be really hard to undo because it's really it's deeply in Republican culture now, and it's tens of millions of people. And so, you know, probably what we have to remember here is that even we want to use terms like terrorists, we're actually really dealing with a really broad swath of uh, the American public who are now uh, enlisted with QAnon ideas, with conspiratorial ideas, with deep white supremacist beliefs that are, you know, activated and sharper than they were and the actual organizational power of groups like the Oath Keepers here, uh, or the 3% Militia, or the Proud Boys, and Bundy's People's Rights Network. Groups with real organizational power, and real firearms training, and real uh, explosive training. And uh, many of these folks are uh, veterans of the forever wars that we've been having for the last 20 years. And so we're, we're really facing something that's uh, quite dangerous, I think, in, in, in many ways. And I don't think there's any, any easy answers. But I would say, maybe in response to David, I, I guess I'm a little bit more in the clenched fist camp. <laughs> I don't think it's possible to enrage these folks anymore. I don't think it's possible to alienate these folks anymore. I don't think it's possible to make the, the people who thought that this was a stolen election feel like things have been made more unjust for them. I think January 6th showed us uh, where this movement is. And, you know, as a joke to somebody today, Scaley's made a, referred to Lincoln's second inaugural address to talk, to make a call for unity during this uh, impeachment vote. And, you know, he seemed to have forgot the part about the uh, drop of blood, you know, brought by the lash was has to be repaid by the sword. So I,
4: They always I, leave out the whole long middle paragraph. <laughs> yeah,
3: exactly. <laughs> indeed,
0: exactly. Indeed. And, and, you know, I would say, um, I mean, to the extent that there was any silver lining, I kind of thought, I mean, maybe it's me. I kind of thought if my boss had thrown me under, you know, to the crowd and uh, allowed a crowd to come in, you know, calling for effectively me to, to be lynched, I would think, well, at least, you know, you know, what time it is, you are utterly clear uh, about the fact that, you know, you're completely and totally expendable. And I kind of thought that for, you know, the other Republicans in uh, the gallery, I mean, they kind of knew help wasn't coming, at least not fast enough. So I was, um, I mean, it's hard to be surprised, but I was surprised about how even an assault on the Capitol that put their lives at risk wasn't enough for them to censure this president. Um, and that makes me even more uh, in in your camp, Joe, I, I don't see what the logics are that we can rely on to try to change this uh, trajectory. So you know, when people are really into well what do we say, you know, to, to bring them back from the edge, I'm coming up short and you've researched it more than most people I know. It sounds like you're coming up short too.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, in some ways, the Republican Party is, you know, it's a far right party in the kind of Central European model, and you know, these days. And it's also not clear that Republican House members, to the degree in which they may have been involved in planning any of this, you know, there's there are Democratic House members who seem to think that they their colleagues were involved and they didn't trust them on that day and they were worried about what was happening. A, a Democratic House member from New Jersey said last night that on the day before, on January 5th, there were Republican House members leading activists on reconnaissance tours through the Capitol. So, you know, what this actually looks like and, you know, what levels of commitment there are, even among Republican House members, to what happened on the 6th, I think is, it remains to be seen. But uh, it sounds like from from accounts that are now really starting to come out that um, it's, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah,
0: yeah.
4: Hey, Kim, I want to make sure I'm not cast into the only healing camp. Because I, oh, I know, know you
0: We I'm, we, just, know I'm actually not with Joe on this.
4: I'm sure <for>, I'm conscious. <laughs> we'll,
0: we'll, we'll come back around, you know, right. in, in fact, as soon as we come back from the break, because, you know, your, your work on, on race and reunion tells us all of the reasons why.
4: Too much healing is a dangerous thing. Exactly,
0: <laughs> um, and and to get to that, I, I do want to talk about historical moments that may be resonant with us now that we've seen what happened. So I want to go back to, you know, something uh, David you said uh, when we were together last time about the Wilmington uh, riot. So I've revisited since then, and part of what was so shocking to me. Uh, was, A, the fact that this isn't part of our historiography. We don't know this. People don't tell you know, the story of not just that coup, but other coups. And so it really came out to me for me when a, a lot of people were saying, well, did you think that they were really going to kill anyone? Or did, you know, come on, they were going in to make their voices heard. And I wanted to say, do you know the stories of angry, entitled, largely white men with guns Feeling like people were exercising power who didn't legitimately have the right to do it. Have you any idea what has happened uh, in the past? So, you know, of course, there's Wilmington, there's Colfax, there's all of these, you know, other moments. I'm wondering what you think of the, the fact that so many of these were based on a huge lie and were constantly repeated and rehearsed and repeated and rehearsed so that the the organ that we rely on to be the great truth teller, you know, uh, the media, journalism, they were as much part of the problem as the guns were. It doesn't seem like we've learned that lesson or we talk about this at all. Does that concern you now, that this lie has been manufactured and reproduced and our media haven't been able to intervene or interrupt in any significant way?
4: Oh, God, yes, it concerns me. I mean, just to start with that point, I mean, to me, I mean, of all the uh, outrages and now crimes that Trump and his minions have committed in the past four years, rendering evidence, facts (laughs) and truth essentially irrelevant, maybe their greatest achievement. I mean, here we all are, uh, we work in universities or journalism. uh, And, you know, we we deeply believe in the, the role of science, of evidence, of facts, of truth when we can find it. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's our lifeblood. It's what we do. But what we've learned is that there are millions and millions of people who have beliefs. It doesn't matter what, Truths are. But just to make a quick point out of that Wilmington story, since you asked, Mm -hmm. it is too little known, although there are some fine books on it now. Um, But that episode was actually a political revolution in the name of white supremacy. It was led by various white Democrats in the state of North Carolina. It was led out of Raleigh by the newspaper, the Raleigh News and Observer, which is still there. And 70-some years after the fact, oh, more than that, actually, 80-some years after the fact, finally issued an apology. Uh, Then it was led by uh, the political leadership of Eastern North Carolina. And what it simply was, was an attempt that succeeded to throw out Black politics, Black politicians, Black city councilpersons, and so on and so forth, Black policemen, in the city of Wilmington, which in 1898 was the largest city in North Carolina, by the way. Its congressman from that district was a black man. He was the last surviving black in the United States Congress. Uh, Two or three members out of six or seven of the city council were black. Their effort was to take over Wilmington and then take over the state and to eliminate black political activity and the right to vote. They killed approximately... We may never know exactly how many. They killed about 30 people in the process in two days. They drove hundreds more African-Americans out of Wilmington forever. And for the next 60-some years, North Carolina came under a Jim Crow white supremacist regime that was celebrated over and over. And what we have to admit about Wilmington, which is what we're beginning to admit now about 6 January, and that is that it was explicitly for the purpose of destroying Black politics and Black citizenship in the interest of white supremacy as a permanent dream. And, you know, I think through the Trump years here, we've wanted to wish this away. We've wanted to say, well, you know, he's going to flare out. He's just too stupid. You know, at some point it's, it's not going to work and so on and so forth. It really worked. 72 million people vote. They didn't all vote because of white supremacy. They got plenty of reasons to vote for Trump. There are plenty of things they hate or plenty of things they wish for, like their tax breaks and their increasing stock portfolios and so on and so forth. But the Wilmington case, people should read about it, uh, is in effect, I called it in my essay about it, an American pogrom. It was an effort to destroy a community it's political life, it's economic life, its very essence.
0: And and David, the, the two things that stand out to me, um, this this was a counter-revolution against what contemporary race class people call for: fusion politics. This was a biracial. Uh, sort of the the perfect solution. When people say, well, you know, what about class? That was partly what was going on. People say, well, articulate your vision for democracy in a way that is broadly inclusive. That's what uh, these politicians were about. And it was that fact that it was a winning strategy uh, that made the white supremacists so determined, not only to relieve them of power, I mean, they, they effectively relieved them of power, but then murdered them, you know, to make sure that they would live on, you know, in infamy. And the other intersectional piece that, you know, people are just starting, you know, to talk about Crystal Fimster. love her work, but it was it was prompted in part by speaking back against the myth of black male rape, of white women pointing out there was, in fact, uh, interracial rape. But it was largely uh, white men and Black women. Just saying that was so enraging that they were able to hold on to that and use it at precisely the moment that they knew they could bring people from all around to enact this horrific, horrific massacre. Um, So uh, Carol, I want to come back to you because we've been talking about lost causes and lies. If we were to say, what is the master lie that undergirds white rage that we've seen play out again and again and again, how would you articulate the master lie?
1: I would say that the, and so let me define white rage. Yes. Um, Because we often think of white rage when, when I say that as the kind of violence that we see. But white rage, when I'm talking about it, are the policies that are put in place to undermine, undercut Black advancement towards their citizenship rights. This is why we have Black codes after the Civil War. Um, This is why we have massive resistance after Brown, the war on drugs after the Civil Rights Movement, Donald Trump after Barack Obama, voter suppression after Barack Obama. And so the, the lie is Black people are not citizens and they do not have rights. It's like Dred Scott. African-Americans have no rights that a white man is bound to respect. And, And so when you see the kind of mobilization and organizing that is happening in the black community to gain hold of their rights, it is enraging. And that rage then comes up in terms of these policies. And one of the things that those policies do is that they then also sanction, approve the violence that rains down on Black people. So one of the things that we saw happening after Wilmington, when I think it's Charles Aycock, who was one of the ringleaders in terms of the coup, the bloody coup in Wilmington, when he then steps in as mayor, the governor of North Carolina was just like, hi, Mr. Mayor, you've killed folks, you are a mass murderer, you have overthrown a democracy, we're not having it. Instead, you get the stamp of approval, the stamp of legitimacy onto the kind of violence that rains down on Black communities. And so that is part and parcel of the framework that we're seeing.
0: And and this is a governor, by the way, who was elected largely as a fusion candidate, right? So
4: yeah. uh, In fact, ACOC was the guy always in the background, never participated or planned the violence. He kind of kept out of of sight in that sense and was available to be now the mayor. And we've had some figures like that, too, haven't we? Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. And so if, uh, as you say, Carol, also in your book, that you know, like night follows day, the, the resistance to uh, success, right? Um, the way up is what engenders the, the violent reaction. Uh, and we've seen that both in Wilmington, but also in Tulsa. And some would say the election of Barack Obama, uh, which was the moment that fueled both the celebration we're post racial, but also this deep resistance response on the on the other side. If that is a dynamic, then what can we expect or what do we think is going to happen as a result of, first of all, Georgia being flipped? Um, and Anoa, I know, guess, I guess the question is, is this a story about the repudiation of lost causes Is this uh, folks of color in the South saying we're here too. Um, and this is the story that we wanna tell and this is a future that we're standing by. So, you know, on the grand scheme of things what kind of victory is it that we're looking at in Georgia?
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we're looking at a story or a victory around the resilience of collective power and action when people come together in coalition to make sure that their needs and the needs of their communities are actually being met. When we look at Georgia, Georgia's a state that has had nine rural hospital closures in the past few years. We don't have Medicaid expansion. And uh, Brian Kemp, as governor, basically entered an agreement with you know the outgoing administration to do away with the ACA exchange here in Georgia. Now, some states have their own exchanges for the ACA. Georgia's like, hey, we don't need an exchange at all. We're just going to throw people out to the wolves in the free market. And these are issues, you know, around healthcare, uh, education. There are issues that have bipartisan support in terms of voters across the state. And yet we have a Republican uh, government that is making decisions based on um, their own needs and power that are not meeting our issues, that are not meeting our needs and concerns. And so we see, you know, Georgia. Origins, whether it's the, the race in terms of, you know, Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff, or, you know, even people organizing back in 2018 to elect Stacey Abrams as governor because people foresaw some of these issues, some of the similar things around criminal justice reform and the steps that uh, Brian Kemp and others have taken to undo uh bipartisan reform in the state, um, even trying to escalate criminal justice attacks on young people by trying to expand the gang database. Um, so we've seen organizers grinding really hard in trying to build not just um, how do we get more people to turn out for this particular election cycle, but what does it mean to build long-term civic engagement and capacity building so that people are not just casting a ballot, I voted, I'll be back in four years, but really understanding the reason why we need to be a part of the process for the long haul. And so we see organizers, not just in you know, some of the metro centers in the state, we see people down in places like Cuthbert, Georgia, you know, which is in Randolph County, and if folks remember in 2018, Randolph County, Georgia was targeted for a closure of seven out of nine, I believe it was, of its polling locations. This is a predominantly Black county, and Brian Kemp sent someone to that county to do these poll closures. And then we later found out that that he had been encouraging more poll closures around the state. So we're seeing the resilience of rural black voters and other voters of color. They're really stepping up and saying, hey, we exist, we're here too. We just need some tools, get out our way and watch us work. And we've seen the rising power also of, you know, Latino and Asian American voters who are part of this brilliant coalition that has been built in Georgia. And it's not saying, you know, Democrats are like, we need to win back white voters and we can't lose Because white people, we don't, we're not losing white people. White people who are choosing not to vote a certain way are, you know, choosing to vote against their own interests for lack of a better phraseology, right? There are white people who are part of this coalition, but we're also recognizing that there are communities that need the full faith and protection uh, that is afforded to us under the constitution in this so-called democracy.
0: And we're going to organize and make sure that happens. The question about, that always is going to come up, like, progressive organizing, you know, where are white people? So let's just say one thing that that this is a coalition that does have white people in it. And when we're talking about white people, we're not talking. I hate that I have to even say this, but I'm always getting people who say, what about us? We're talking about ideological whiteness, people whose allegiance is directed to and embraces the idea of whiteness. So obviously, that doesn't involve everybody. And at the same time, obviously, it is a tremendous political force in American society more now than some people uh, would be willing to have admitted, I think, over the last decade. You know, so on that question, I want to remind us of how we've talked about whiteness in the past. And and, and Joe, I'm coming back to you on this because we had um, a conversation about COVID as an opportunity for disaster whiteness to happen. We've talked about the fact that the frame of well, what we need to do is talk about common interests. When we talk about common interests, as opposed to identity politics, people will come come back to our conversation. Well, here we have a moment where we have had an effort to militarize uh, something that is a common interest, basically protecting us all, each other, and ourselves against COVID. That's become militarized and framed within uh, a discourse that at least has some dimension of whiteness, if not completely uh, so. We have a hope that, well, once we convince people that the whole planet is on fire and we have a common interest, you know, people will come along on that. Not so, so it seems. So I guess what I'm wondering is what is the political logic now that underscores our efforts to build common cause? If all rationality, and all belief in truth is off the table, then what is on the table right now?
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, one thing about the 19th century, um, it it kind of occurred to me that, you know, one bright spot that happens after Wilmington, by the time you get to the 1890s, is uh, the emergence of black populism in the South. And this was a, you know, self-directed autonomous uh, movement by laborers and farmers to push back against uh, the planter elites, the bourbon class, and um, as well as the larger interests that, that the populist movement more generally uh, was going after. And, you know, in places like Georgia uh, and Florida and Texas, uh, black populists really made the difference. And whites and in, in kind of other organizations connected with populism knew that they required these fellow, you know, political participants to make this thing happen. And so I think, you know, one of the things about right now, we think about just like, what's everybody's common interest in a country rooted in settler colonialism and white supremacy, you just, you can't have that kind of conversation because it just erases all this stuff that that real material, real forms of uh, difference and stratification um, and disparity. On the other hand, Black-led struggle over the last six months has been something that has given as is as, as always the case in American politics, offers something much more broad in terms of uh, democratic horizons and freedoms to everyone else. And so, you know, a summer of Black Lives Matter protests, the largest social movement in American history really pushed forward and mobilized millions of people in the streets. And part of this energy went into the election cycle in November, a broad set of mobilizations that really have kind of like, I mean, look at Georgia. It, It saved us from Trump, you know? And these were Black voters. And it's the same in Pennsylvania. It's the same in Wisconsin. It's the same, you know, in in other states around the country on election day.
0: This is kind of our lightning round. So we're going to try to get as many quick responses as we possibly can. Um, I want to start with the, the question of the police and of course say something about this use of Say Her Name to frame Ashley Babbitt. Um, So I'll just say, Say Her Name is explicitly framed as a way of elevating the failure to address the experiences that black women have had uh, with state sanctioned violence. And so it is amazing to me Uh, that over the weekend, one of the supporters of Say Her Name, Drew Brees, had a Say Her Name t-shirt on, and there was tremendous controversy around it from all sides of the spectrum. I just want to say um, that the Saints have been supporting uh, Say Her Name, supporting the attention that it tries to bring towards uh, black women who've been killed by the police and their families. And it is just another example of what happens when Black people are gentrified out of the places that they've created for themselves to uh, be seen and to, to be heard. Um, so, on that note, what do we make about the arguments that have been made? First of all, they try to create symmetry. Uh, between Black Lives Matter and what happened in the Capitol. I want you to say something quickly about that, Carol. And and Joe, what about police? What about police participation uh, in this right-wing movement? Is it new, necessarily? So, Carol. So I would say that what we're seeing is that false equivalence,
1: trying to to make a movement that is about going after state-sanctioned violence against Black people, to try to make that on par with trying to overthrow a government. And so you hear them also saying, but yes, Black Lives Matter, they were so violent. Again, when you're not evidence-based, BLM hasn't killed anybody. BLM hasn't blown up anything. And the reports are really clear. The violence that happened overwhelmingly this summer was because of the escalation by police um, and going after, nonviolent protesters. When it came out that it was actually like the Boogaloo Boys or the Proud Boys who were actually shooting at the, the precinct and trying to blow stuff up there where the police were to give the illusion that it was in fact Black violence because one of the narratives, one of the big lies in American society is the violence of Black people. And so it becomes so logical to say, well, Black people are blowing up stuff. This is what Black people do. This is what Black people are. It is, again, a a throwback to Black pathology to justify the mess that happened.
0: And, you know, we we have to, of course, add to The fact that many comments about why the police and the security that people thought should have happened didn't happen was partly because there was a dismissal of what this threat represented—the the sense that these are basically people who talk a lot, but they're not going to do anything. Whereas Black Lives Matter, of course, there is the long history of associating uh, blackness with a threat and with violence. Even though Black Lives Matter has never called, you know, for killing anyone, has never encouraged people, you know, to come out and and wreak havoc. It is none of the things that we saw even on the posters, much less the things that people have talked about. Yet uh, the FBI has framed uh, black identity extremists as being the same as these extremists who are actually now responsible for killing people. So actually in our so-called security you know, plan, there is this false equivalence that I don't see as anything but racist. And it's still very much part of how uh, Black protests and demands have been seen. Um, and Joe, what what should we make of the fact that there is a significant involvement of law enforcement in this attempted coup uh, and in the broader movement?
3: Yeah, well, you know, I think at last count, there's 28 officers who were uh, part of the, the takeover uh, from 12 states. And um, at least one member of the Secret Service who was either deeply involved in this or promoting it over social media. You know, there's been plenty of reports that white supremacist organizations have, you know, infiltrated or saturated or long have been part of local police departments. And of course, as we know that the, the very origins of, of the police in the United States are, are partly based on slave patrols and frontier militias, anti-indigenous frontier militias. So there's something about you know, white supremacy which is at the heart of, of what policing is anyway. Um, but it's also interesting to see the way that the, you know, people in the Capitol takeover treated the police, yelling oh. at them, you work for us, you work for us, which is not you know, a way that other people would ever approach the police. And they were willing to attack the police when they saw them not doing what they thought, protecting their white interests and protecting their interests in that moment. So I think this is, you know, out here in the West, you see it all over the place. There are six sheriffs in Oregon who are part of the constitutional Uh, Sheriff's and Peace Officers Association, who who take a vow not to uh, enforce federal laws that go against what they think are in the interest of the county. Often these have to do with Second Amendment things, but it's not just that. And not just in local law enforcement, this stuff is in the FBI and, uh, and elsewhere, but I think, and also that, you know, the Police Benevolent Association have been strong Trump supporters for the last four years, and they're probably the most, you know, far-right, maybe proto-fascist organization in the country in some way. So the role of police in this is troubling, to say the least, I would say.
0: And I would say, again, the contradiction, right? So, there's no flag flying at half mast because of a white police officer, a police officer, you know, being killed. It is consistent with the fact that there were police officers who were injured by the right during this summer of reckoning and there was virtually no, you know, sort of blue lives matter protest around that. So I think that moment of you work for us, Tells us a lot about when police are being embraced and and when when they're not. It's basically and what interests they are serving as opposed to just being police. Uh, no, I want I want to you know sort of come to you and, and raise something um, that Latasha Brown said when she was here before when we were talking about Southern Rule, and she was saying the Senate under Mitch McConnell is. Uh, a moment in which we are all learning you know, what Southern rule really is all about. The whole country, everything south of the Canadian border uh, is basically under Southern rule. So what lessons do we now move thankfully away from this you know, last period of the whole country being under Southern rule? What lessons do we move away with that might give us a window in how we survive and, and try to recapture a future that has been taken away from us. I mean, just, just the opportunity to have
2: real discussion of issues affecting people across the country I don't think how many people really understand what Mitch McConnell has obstructed and kept from us, um, including as we're still in the middle of this pandemic and the meager assistance that has been provided. That has been something that has been used as a cudgel against Democrats, against the American people. um, And hopefully we will really see some some traction movement. So I think the lesson from Georgia is that we can run on bold issues, we can have leaders who stand firm and represent the people and still win Uh, when we listen to a coalition of folks who are really firm and strong and we speak from the
0: heart. And with, with that, of course, is the space that may be opened up by our incoming president. So, David, what's the lesson of reunion and appeasement? You know, you you took readers through scene after scene about uh, how the desire to make up and make nice literally threw Black people under the bus and left us under the bus for decades. So hearing the make nice kind of language is kind of post-traumatic stress, you know, for anyone who knows that history. So to help us see why appeasement without accountability is a disaster and what the moments are to redirect that energy.
4: Well, Joe Biden won't have the time to read Race and Reunion. It's too long a book. Which is
0: why we need to make it really quick so he can hear it. I'm
4: sorry, you you bet. Well, the lesson was um, you cannot have healing without justice. You have to have both. And the great tragedy of Civil War memory, and it was a harrowing task, let's face it, And so is this task now. The great tragedy was that healing and justice never came in balance. Uh, The healing of the country, the reunion, if you like, came at at the great cost of the victories of the Civil War. It came at the cost of black civil and political rights. It came at the cost of a lot of lives and livelihoods. Uh, But we do need to remember here, reconciliation is a deep human instinct So it's not at all surprising that Biden is going to give us a narrative of healing and unity. And we may at times, some of us on the left have to just say, "Okay, Joe, you do your part. But the Congress has to do its part. It's got to pass real legislation. It's got to pass economic legislation, COVID legislation, climate legislation, environmental legislation, voting rights legislation, and make things happen. Because in all likelihood, the Biden administration only has two more years. And I want to give a shout out to Anoa. If there's a great ray of hope in this moment, it was the electoral politics that happened in this year, 2020, in coalitions that narrowly, let's remember, won Georgia, Arizona, barely won Wisconsin, let's not forget. And even my home, original home state of Michigan was pretty close. So it's coalition politics, young people. It's coalition politics that changes this country, always has. And that's the lesson of Georgia.
0: Yeah. And Joe, I want to come back for, you know, a a benediction from you. What kind of leadership, what kind of leader do we need to interrupt, disrupt, create alternatives for those who are exposed to and you know, sort of follow uh, this right-wing politics. I'm always uh, real struck by the descriptions that you have of the marchers with people pushing baby carriages and young people and sort of folks who see this as as part of their existential existence. What kind of equation or leadership do we need to break that or at least to have an option for people to be exposed to alternatives that fall along the uh, coalition politics that David is talking about?
3: You know, one of the things I've been thinking during this panel tonight, is we, we talk on the one hand about the big lie, and on the other hand, about these, you know, kind of white racial interests. And there's a way in which there's not really a lie in some ways, you know, people who are, uh, were opposed to the election results, partly oppose them, because as, you know, as Carol said, um, they want to delegitimize black and brown votes. And so there's some there is some kind of sense of you know, of wide interest there that people are following. In, in some ways, then, the conspiracy theories just kind of are help do the work of, of people's own impulses. At a time when there's a, a bigger gap between the very wealthiest and everyone else as there ever has been in, in US history, it's like the Gilded Age and more so. And there's a lot. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of precarity. There's a lot of insecurity. There's a lot of sense of state abandonment uh, here in Oregon. There's there's big swaths of the state that don't have any 911 service. Don't have any public libraries. Don't have any law enforcement. You know, and those people have turned to militias to do some of that. Some of that basic work. Some of the basic volunteer work. First responder work. But you know, part of what needs to happen, I think, for these people who are open to these kinds of appeals from the far right is to offer them some other forms of meaning, some other forms of politics, some other forms of, you know, something else that that kind of draws them in in a different way that would allow them to identify not just with, you know, kind of cramped and mean-spirited, austerity-oriented wide interests, but something else. that's about care. It's about nurturance. It's about plenitude. And partly, I'm not sure this will come from a leader. I think it will come from movements from below and from experiences like just happened in Georgia and, you know, kind of broader... Um, broader, you know, revivify democratic struggles from below. I hope I don't know, I'm not sure that's gonna happen, but that (laughs) I think it's the best we got right now.
0: We we have to have, you know, some kind of prize to have our eyes on. So, Carol, I'm gonna come back to you for our benediction, and in a way, I wanna sample us from before. So, the last time you were on the show, I said, you know, there's this sense that this is kind of like Groundhog Day. Uh, We wake up and we think it's a new day, it's a different day, we stretch, we're excited, there's an awakening, and then there's repression. It seems like historically we kind of go through this again and again and again. So I asked you before, is it possible to write a different narrative? What is it uh, that's holding us back? And you talked about the zero-sum game, breaking the myth of the zero sum gain. So what does Carol have to say about Carol now?
1: (laughs) Uh, And I still hold to that. And one of the things I also think is really important for us, because I mean, we are looking into the abyss, but what we have to understand that as a larger nation, Trump never got the majority of the votes, never. And he never went above 50% in terms of approval rating. Even when the economy was good and he was coasting in on Obama's economy, he still did. So that there are people, a vast majority of people who are repulsed by that kind of politics. That is really something to build on. And when I talk about the zero sum game, what it does is it pits people against each other so that you can't have those powerful coalitions. Because it says that the only way that African-Americans can get will be at the expense of whites or be at the expense of Latinos, or that the only way Latinos can get will be at the expense of. And so by creating a narrative of scarcity, then what that does is it then pits people against each other. So when we think about the kinds of narratives that our media need to have, the kinds of narratives that our scholars need to have, the kinds of narratives that our policymakers must have, it is the narrative of breaking the zero sum game. You know, Joe talked about the massive income and wealth disparities in this nation. It is not a matter of wealth, it is a matter of the distribution of that wealth. This isn't zero-sum game. There is enough abundance there for there to be 911 service in Oregon, for there to be hospitals in rural Georgia, for there to be enough food so we don't have people going hungry being in food lines. There is enough there. And it is the narrative of the zero-sum game that creates this sense of scarcity. And when people are feeling that there's not enough there, then it puts them on high alert for for how they're going to survive. We've got to think about how we thrive and how we thrive is by breaking the zero sum game.
0: And your contribution to that project along with all of you, all puts us in a better position to make Uh, the myth of zero-sum more apparent than ever before. So I want to thank you all for joining us. Uh, Before closing out, I want to, first of all, say there's so many ways that we could have gone at this and so many aspects of this. We didn't get a chance to talk about COVID being a huge part. And I really want to use this moment to recognize four people in Congress right now you know who are fighting the good fight despite the conditions that that they're fighting under. So, Representative Jayapal, Representative Schneider, Representative Coleman are are fighting under conditions that have been created uh, because their co-congressmen seem to not be willing to look after the health of everyone. So they all have been tested COVID positive since last week's uh, sheltering in place. We want to uh, send our warmest wishes and, and prayers to them. And also I want to say uh, something about my former colleague, good friend, Jamie Raskin, who's leading this fight uh, while mourning the tragic death of his son. You all are in our hearts and our prayers. I wanna thank um, Carol Anderson, David Blight, Anoa Changa and Joe Lowndes, veterans uh, of Under the Black Light, willing to talk through this and develop a conversation that brings you all into the center of the discourse. Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was edited by Julia Sharp Levine and Rebecca Scheckman. Additional support was provided by the team at the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by leaving a review on iTunes, following us on social media, or signing up for our Patreon page. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters.
3: Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation.
4: I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the lawyer was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens
3: when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away?
4: We gotta attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio
1: app or wherever you get your podcasts.